Well, I want to thank Brother Paul for the reading of our scripture this morning. And as a reminder, we hear the word of God, both spoken and sung um, in various languages, because we are not alone. All over the world, right here, right now, our brothers and sisters in Christ from every tongue and tribe and nation and language are making much of Jesus Christ. And we're a part of that. We're not by ourselves. This is a good thing. Amen? Now, I want to put a tag on our message this morning, which based on the scripture reading that you heard, and I want to title it this. Here it is. Fixated on Christ, how God chooses to forget our sins. Say that with me. Fixated on Christ, how God chooses to forget our sins. Yeah. Yeah, that came from verse 17 in our Advent reading. Verse 17, we heard the Lord say, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Uh, that's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. And my goal this morning for us is to help us believe this verse. My, my goal is that we might trust that this verse is true in your life and in the life of our congregation. That when we gather together here in this space, we come fully convinced that God in Christ came to remember our sins and lawless deeds no more. And I'm just wondering if there's anybody here who's struggling to believe that. Each week we gather, and we sing songs like Waymaker, Miracle Worker. We pray, we hear the preacher say, God loves you. But deep down inside, we wonder, we do. Because we're afraid he doesn't. We're afraid that God's going to change his mind about us at the 11th hour. We're afraid that there's going to be a bait and switch and, and that, that the door of heaven will be slammed shut and God inaccessible. And, and as a result, we, we feel pickled in guilt. Like it's not enough, like we're not enough. And, and there's a word for this, and it's the word disesteem. Disesteem. Um, in his book, Guilt, Anger, and God, a, a pastor now retired, his name is C. Fitzsimmons Allison. He used this word, disesteem, when he talked about the most common mistake that he made in his pastorate. He wrote, The most common mistake I made was overlooking disesteem in the lives 
of the church members I served. Disesteem. And, and by disesteem, he did not mean you know, low self-esteem. He said it's worse than that. It's zero esteem. He wrote, The apparently self-assured are often desperately unhappy with themselves, and the obnoxiously conceited are invariably attempting to cover themselves with an impervious shell that will not disclose this self-hatred. He said, Many very strong personalities with unusual talent, prestige, and power show their gnawing disesteem by their surprising vanity, their constant desire to be flattered, and their persistent need for reassurance. Gaining power does not mean gaining self-esteem. And then he said this, he said, disesteem is at the center of all the vicious cycles and circles of self-defeating destructive acts, uh, uh, be it the compulsive gambler, the overeater, the sexually promiscuous, the procrastinator, the temper loser, the gossiper, the heavy drinker, all testify to the fact that their temptations are strongest when they feel this diminished dignity as an image bearer of God. Disesteem. I wonder, I just wonder how many of us are here today and we feel imprisoned in a dungeon of disesteem. And as a result, we just, we, we don't find singing, worship songs very meaningful. We've lost interest in the Bible and we, we possess this crippling insecurity that God has all of our flaws at the front of his mind and it's just a matter of time. He's going to throw the book at us. And when that story gets told over and over and over in your mind, you're not going to have a holly jolly Christmas, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and frankly, others around us won't either. And what I came here today to say is that when God's Word says in Hebrews 10, 17, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more, He means it. He means it. And for the sake of the person who may be asking, well, how? How can God say that? For the sake of that person, I would ask us to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, is a, a review of all that has been said since Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. So if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we've been just taking a journey through this uh, first century sermon manuscript called the Letter to the Hebrews. And uh, this is a good Sunday to be here because all that we're going to be talking about this morning is by way of reiteration of what's been said before. This, this sermon preached to a weary, beleaguered, and persecuted congregation. They've already gone through one storm front of persecution there in the Roman Empire, and, and they're about ready to face more persecution a little later on. And they're weary, and, uh, and they need encouragement about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and how he did it to gather us as his redeemed people. And so these verses are here to change your mind about who God is. And when you know who God is, you're going to know who you are. 
Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, explains how God can say, I will remember their sins no more. And, and I'll just tell you the answer to that question. How is it that God can remember my sins no more? Well, the answer is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. It says, Christ came into the world. That's how. Because that's Christmas. Christmas is Christ coming into the world. Christmas is God the Son putting on human flesh and perfectly fulfilling the will of His Father for us. Chris, Christmas is no afterthought of God. Christmas is not you know, God scrambling and trying to find the best plan B. <laughs> That's not Christmas. No, Christmas was God's plan. Christmas is not plan B. There is no plan B. There's just always been God's plan. And Christmas was God's plan from before creation. So, so, so Christmas is not, you know, God practicing medicine. Let's try and see if this treatment works or this prescription or this or that. No, no disrespect to our physicians here this morning. I'm just saying, that's not what Christmas is. Christmas, here's Christmas. Big idea heading your way. Christmas is the final fulfillment of God's forecast to forgive our sins. There, there, there. Say that with me. On three. One, two, three. Christmas is the final fulfillment of God's forecast to forgive our sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God can say, I forgive because His Son gave. Christmas is the will of God forecasted from before creation, fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Christmas, the fulfillment of God's forecast to forgive our sins. So our key words, you're hearing key words, forecast and fulfillment. This text deals with the forecast of forgiveness. That's verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4, the forecast of forgiveness. And then verses 5 through 18 deal with the fulfillment of forgiveness in Christ. So let's just walk through this passage of Scripture, beginning with the first section, the forecast of forgiveness, verses 1 through 4. Now, verse 1 says that, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, law, let's stop there, law, what do I mean when I say law? What do we mean by law? Well, I mean what the preacher to the Hebrews means. When the preacher to the Hebrews says law, that word refers to the first covenant, the Old Testament, the, the former covenant, and, and specifically the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the, the first covenant, the first five books of the Bible. The old covenant law had instructions about Israel's place of worship called the tabernacle, and there were various regulations and offering uh, instructions and instructions about the priesthood, and all of it, all of it, Hebrews says, possessed but a shadow of the good things to come. The law has but a shadow of the good things to come. So the Old Testament covenant was a shadow, but Christ was the shadow. Christ is the shadow maker. So Christ is the, here's the verse, keep reading, the true form of these realities. So, so Jesus is the substance behind the shadow. So the Old Covenant was never meant to be an end in itself. Otherwise, as verse 2 claims, 
wouldn't they have stopped offering sacrifices for sin? You see verse 2? Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? So if the old covenant were so effective, why'd they have to keep offering those sacrifices? You see, that's the point. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Christians who first heard these words, I mean, they needed to hear what the preacher was arguing because some of them were pining to return to, to live in the shadow. They were re- wanted to return to the old covenant. I mean, they met in a house church, and the, you know, there, was no, there was no like church facility or campus. or They didn't have a temple or a tabernacle or, or no you know, robed priests, etc. They, 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 they were practically swallowed by a pagan culture of highly experiential idol worshipers. And it's not that they were wanting to go to that extreme of experiential worship. They just wanted to kind of go back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to the Old Covenant. Let's go back to the tabernacle. And and the preacher says, okay, okay, okay. Let's let's play that scenario out. Let's play that out. All right? Here's Here's what you're saying you want to go back to. Go, Go to the entrance of Israel's tabernacle. Just go there. Oh, oh, don't forget a lamb. Make sure you bring a lamb with you because you're going to have to watch that lamb's throat get slit and slaughtered as a substitute. And then it's going to be consumed by an altar of fire. So, so, So every Old Testament believer was familiar with death. Kill an ox, kill a bull, kill a lamb, kill a goat, Witness its flesh consumed in the flame. See its blood sprinkled. Smell the smoke. Hear the bleeding. You you couldn't come into the tabernacle without hearing and seeing the ritual of constant animal slaughter. And, And so here's the experience. The experience is the experience of knowing that it's always because of your sin against a holy God. And it's the experience of knowing that it's not going to be the last time. You're going to have to go back again and again because it's just a temporary ritual. It's not final or complete. So so, so the Old Testament covenant can remind me of my sin, but it can never rid me of my sin. And that's why the preacher says in Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible, not improbable, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin so so the preacher says think about this think this through how how could an animal which constitutes a shadow ever compensate for the reality of my sin you see my sin is never a shadow My sin is real. Ask my wife. She never, she doesn't say, oh, that's just a shout. She doesn't say that. That's real. It's real. My sin is real. Its results are real. Its wages are real. The, wa- the wages of sin is death. That's, death's real. See? So, so how can a shadow help me? And, and, could an animal sacrifice ever really compensate for my offense against a holy God? Could a, could a beast, a beast, 
which according to the Bible does not bear the image of God, could a beast adequately forgive the sin of an image bearer? Really? No. Oh, and did that animal volunteer? No. No. No, no, so, so, so you need someone who outranks you to provide for your forgiveness. And so the shadow is a forecast of the good things to come. And, and in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, the law forecasts at a time when God would act substantially to remember our sins no more. Now, I'm going to be out in the foyer here. I'd love to meet with you and visit with you and pray with you. And already, you may have some questions. So let me just try to answer them right now. Okay, one question someone might ask me is, well, okay, pastor, if, 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 if people are saved by grace through faith in the new covenant, how are people in the old covenant saved? And the answer is, by grace through faith. It's, by, it's, it's through faith. That, I mean, just look at Hebrews chapter 11, and you'll, you'll see that salvation came through faith. He, Hebrews 11 is a list of case studies, men and women in the Old Covenant, who put their faith in the forecast, God's forecast of Christ. In other words, in other words they trusted that to which the shadow pointed. They, they were depending on, relying on, trusting in the promise of the one who would one day come. And, and I just cite one case study in Hebrews chapter 11 that demonstrates this point. It says in Hebrews eleven twenty six, Moses considered, Moses, Old Covenant Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, you see. So the Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the forecast of Christ's coming. That's a question that someone might ask me, and that's the answer. That's, the, that's my best right here and right now. And, and, the other, and the other question that someone might ask me is, well, Pastor, why all the process? Why, the pro, why, you know, why did God wait all this time to send Jesus? Why, why, I mean, why didn't the cross happen right after the fall of Adam and Eve? You know, and, and having to go through, you know, you know, you know uh, uh, enslavement in Egypt, and then, you know, uh, Joshua and Judges, and 1st, 2nd Samuel, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, why, 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 why didn't the cross happen right after the fall of Adam and Eve, then followed by the new heavens and the new earth? Why all the process? Why all the process? That's a, that's a, that's a question. That's a good question. And, and my best answer is this, because, uh, the mo and this most obvious answer, we wouldn't be here otherwise. So, so the Lord's patience is for us and for our salvation. And that he is patient means that he operates on a different time zone than we do. And, and, and here is something else to consider. How God does what God does is just as important as what God does. 
Let me say that again. How God does, what God does, is just as important as what God does. So, so, so God, at, at any point, God can say to Satan, put yourself in hell and stay there. And, and it would be so. And one day he will. But God is working his mysterious, sovereign will in such a way that will bring praise to his glory as everything in all of creation, heaven and earth, are united in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we read in Ephesians 1. That, that the goal of it all is, is un union in Christ. So... How God does what God does is, I mean, we're just going to be going for all eternity. Oh, God, only you, only you, only you. But now, but now, Christ has come. And, and, and that's been the ongoing message in Hebrews. When Christ came into the world, that's, that's merely an echo of, of, of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come. Hebrews 9, 26, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, so the law is the forecast, Christ is the fulfillment, and his arrival is the fulfillment of God's forecast to forgive our sins so let's move let's move from the forecast of forgiveness to the fulfillment and and verse 5 leads us there when verse 5 says consequently when christ came into the world he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure then i said that's jesus talking even from the old testament then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, now verses 5 through 7 in Hebrews 10 are a citation from Psalm chapter 40. A psalm about praising God for his deliverance and having to wait for God's deliverance patiently. And the heart of Psalm 40 is this quote, this citation in verses 5 through 7. And you might recall this phrase, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Well, where's that from? I've heard that before. I've heard that in the Old Testament. Where? 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, where the prophet Samuel rebuked King Saul for giving an unauthorized sacrifice concerning the evil king Agag and the Amalekites and the herds. And Samuel offered a forbidden sacrifice. And he thought he, was, he, thought he was just doing God an act of worship, but God never asked Sam, uh, King Saul to do that. In fact, Samuel rebuked Saul by saying, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so, so this verse here, describes is now been 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 immersed in jesus when christ came it's as if his first words were i've come to do your will 
O God. Because what God wants most is a willing heart, not a ritual sacrifice. And the Gospels tell us of how Jesus lived for the will of his Father. So, for instance, in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of the Father, the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. That's my food. What's for breakfast, Jesus? The will of God. What about lunch? Will of God. And then, okay, we got it. The will of God. The will of God. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38. John 6, 38. Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And, and throughout the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus touched a leper. A leper. Who did that in the first century? Well, Jesus did. And yet, when Jesus touched the leper, Jesus did not become unclean. The leper became clean. He was healed because that was God's will. And in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus goes to a paralytic, and everybody assumed, everybody, everybody assumed, that Jesus would say to the paralytic, you are healed. But that's not what Jesus said first. Rather, he said, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> that was God's will. And then he healed the man to show that the Son of Man had authority to forgive sins. And then in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, Jesus goes to Matthew, a tax collector. A Hebrew tax collector working for the Roman Empire. So he was a, a, an enemy of the Hebrew people because he was seen as a traitor. And, and, but Jesus goes to Matthew, the tax collector, at his office doing his job. And he simply says, follow me. And Matthew right there and then closed shop and followed him. And what kind of a person has the power and presence to call someone from their from their breadwinning vocation, and that person just leaves. See? And then Jesus was, 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 was ridiculed by the legalistic Pharisees and religious teachers. Well, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. See, it was God's will. Jesus delighted in doing God's will. He prayed, Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and Gethsemane, the night before the cross, he pleaded, God, my Father, not the cross. But then he said this, yet not my will, but thine be done. And here was the Father's will for the Son. Here, here. A body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. So, so listen, if you want to see the seriousness of our sin, we must first see the greatness of Christ's sacrifice. For when Christ came, God did not tell him to offer a lamb for us. And God did not tell him to offer a, a bull or an ox or a goat for us no 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 instead he said i want you to offer your own body for us see jesus self-offering marked the end of animal sacrifices and a new era had begun and when jesus rose bodily from the grave 
on the third day, it gave evidence that his offering was effective. And that's why verse 10 says, by that will we have been sanctified. By that will we've been sanctified. That word sanctified means the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So, so we are a part of the process of becoming more like Jesus by the body of Jesus who gave himself once for all. And so what was forecast was fulfilled in Christ. The shadow maker has come. A new high priest has entered the true sanctuary. And he didn't just stand before the altar. He got up on it. And he didn't come to take a life. He came to surrender his life. And he did not merely perform sacrifices. He was the sacrifice. And we're never going to understand the cross until we see it as the altar upon which the Son of God willingly died in our place. Christ came as the Lamb of God who offered his body as the single sacrifice for sins. And, and, and as if the preacher just wants to keep drilling deep into the point the preacher says in verse 11, look, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Those Old Testament priests stood daily, served daily, and offered daily the same sacrifices which could not take away sin. But when Christ came, he offered himself once and for all. And when he did, he sat, and that means done, over, finished, tetelestai, complete. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now just stop right there. Do you hear the verb tense? Do you hear the verb tense? He has perfected. He has perfected. That's actually the perfect tense, meaning past event with continuing effects. The perfect tense is the past tense with continuing effects. He has perfected. This happened then, but has continuing effects. So, so it doesn't mean that we're perfect. <laughs> it means that God treats us as if we were perfect. You say, well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair. It's grace. It's grace. And, and then verse 14 says, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Remember? Sanctified, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. So it's a process. It's a present tense process. That's what it is. So the God who sees you and treats you as perfect is committed to giving you his Holy Spirit who will help you become the person he says you are in Christ. So, so that's good news, isn't it? It's good news. So, so God's going to use all of life to make you more and more like Christ. So, so if you're married, he's going to use your marriage to make you more and more like Christ. If, if, you're, if you're unmarried, he's going to use your unmarriage to make you more and more like Christ. He's going to use your job 
to make you more and more like Christ. He's going to use that. He's going to use that, 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 that boss. Oh, that boss. He's going to use that boss to make you more and more like Christ. He's, he's, going, to use, he's going to use that slow poke. He's going to use that slow poke in traffic to make you more and more like Christ. He is. He's going to use that slow poke. Oh, that's why that person's there. Uh, that's why they're there. They're there to make me more and more like Christ. And then, and he's also going to use that tailgater in traffic. In traffic. I'm not talking about the tailgater with the lawn chair. I'm talking about the other tailgater who's just tailgating you and that just irritating you to know any. Wow, that's okay. God sent that person to make me more like Jesus. Praise you, Lord. He's going to. He's going to use, he's, he's going to waste nothing, seriously. He's going to use that victory. He's going to use that tragedy. He's going to use cancer. He's going to use your church family, one another, to sanctify you in Christ. Do you, do you understand? How, just think about that for a minute, see. How that, how just that perspective will change how we see ourselves at Windsor Road Christian Church. That, that, when, that when the inevitable conflict comes from folks who get together, and you want to get together, and you want to know one another, and you want to get closer, and, but when you get connected and get close to one another, you see each other's faults. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen then? Are we going to just, well, I'm just going to leave and go someplace. Well, you know, that, that's not a good plan. The better plan is, okay, 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 okay. How is God going to use this to make us like Jesus? To make me like Jesus. I'm going to worry about me. Let God be king of them. So we who have been perfected are being sanctified, you see. So... In verse 16, we learn, and this is, the, this is a really beautiful part of this passage, we learn that part of the process of becoming more like Christ is that we start seeing the Word of God differently. So before Christ, we lived under the law, outside of Christ. But because of Christ, in Christ, through Christ, we have been transformed. And so Christ has not only transformed me, but he's transformed the law such that his spirit now has put the law in our hearts and tattooed the law within our minds. That, that's what's behind verse 16. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. So there's a transformation that's occurred so that we are no longer under the law. Rather, the law is within us, meaning we want to keep God's law now. We delight in keeping God's law. We, as we, keep in step, we, we see the law through the filter of Christ. And we keep in step with the Spirit and cooperate with the Spirit. We walk by faith in the power of the Spirit. We not only keep the law, but we delight in the law. Our lives display the beauty of Psalm 119, verse 16. Psalm 119, verse 16. I will delight in your statutes. I will never forget your word. So the God who forgets our sins, is worshipped by his people who will not forget his word. Man. 
Jesus' forgiveness puts us in a right relationship with God and His Holy Spirit implants His Word in our hearts to keep us in a right relationship with God. And that's how we arrive at verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And that means, that means God says, I will not use your sins against you. When, when I look at you in my son, I will say, this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. Not, what dumb thing did you do today? See? Praise the Lord. Yeah. So, so, church family, God choosing not to remember is not the same as God suffering a memory lapse. It, it means he doesn't remind himself of our sin because he only sees us in his son. And a shadow can't do that. A forecast can't do that. Only, only the fulfillment can. And that's why part of our vision statement is passionately pursuing Christ. Not passionately pursuing self-improvement. Not, not passionately pursuing name it and claim it. Not passionately pursuing health and wealth. We are passionately pursuing the way maker, the promise keeper. We're pursuing Christ. We're pursuing Christ. And, and listen, my prayer as your pastor is that we we will know and believe and feel and act without the slightest pause that when God sees us and thinks about us and hears our prayers he is the God who refuses to remember our sins not because there aren't any and not because we didn't kill it this week with Advent devotions but because he really truly loves us. And he loved us such that he sent his son, the one of ultimate substance, to pay for our sins. And, and when, a, when a church community grasps that truth, then we'll come together and we will say with Psalm 40, we have come to do your will, O God. We, and when the world hears and witnesses us saying, we've come to do your will, O oh God, they're going to get curious. They're going to get curious. They're going to, what, what's different about you? And, and, and how can I have what you have? And, and the answer to that is, well, receive and believe. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what that means is we need to cease resisting God. Cease resisting God. That's called repentance. And we need to receive what God has done in Christ on our behalf. We need to believe on his name, trust him, depend upon him, rely upon him. And then we need to demonstrate saving faith. We need to demonstrate, we need, to, we need to, to, to give evidence of the fruit of faith. And the scripture talks about confessing the mouth and a baptized body. Yeah. 
I must believe and receive now what Christ did once for all. You know, in a way, we're like the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. Luke 2 says that, that the humble shepherds were the first to meet the baby Jesus. They, they heard the announcement from that angelic host. In Luke chapter 2, verse 16 says, They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Thanks be to God. Amen.